Before we get into today's episode, we wanted to introduce you guys to Shoebox. Shoebox is designed for sneaker enthusiasts, a unique, one-of-a-kind, sneaker-inspired pin product. What makes them unique is that 10% from every pin sold goes to purchasing new sneakers for kids in need. At the PLP, we love to support the youth. So y'all use the code LOUNGE20 at checkout to get 20% off. You can find them at shopshoebox.com, so S-H-O-P-S-H-O-O-B-O-X.com or on Instagram at shoebox underscore, S-H-O-O-B-O-X underscore. Thank y'all and enjoy the episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the President's Lounge. I'm with one of the most profound people I met who's had a big impact in my life. It was even short, two years, a year and a half, right, Coach? Wasn't that long of my football career. That knee injury took me out. (laughs) But uh, tell (laughs) us a bit about yourself and uh, what you do and who are are you? Um, My name's Kamal Peterson. I'm uh, a former offensive coordinator at York University and um, was also the head strength and conditioning coach of football while I was there over six years that I was served there and I was a, a football Canada coach from 2012 through 2016. Um, mm-hmm. I'm an entrepreneur. I've been a pro athlete. I was a retired pro athlete of CFL and NFL for played for 11 years. It's it's a tough question the what do you do but I yeah. You know, currently do a, a number of things. I'm involved in several nonprofit organizations as board members, mm-hmm. as well as running my own and an entrepreneur and run a couple of companies. Um, but I'm a, ultimately, I'm a builder of and mentor and, and teacher of young people, uh, specifically young black men, has been uh, kind of the bulk of my life's work as an adult, aside from um, the platform that that I've been able to cultivate through playing you know and been able to build my profile a bit so that I could reach some of these young black men yeah for sure in terms of even my my relation with you I've had moments when during playing that you would pull me aside to your office and say what's going on what's up what's happening with you like mm-hmm. you're missing stuff you're not here you're not here and it wasn't a and it was never anything demeaning or anything it was always okay how can we fix this what steps do we need to take and how can we find a balance between family and school and family and sports where you can work on things? Cause you kind of understood that experience of like, I told you everything with my mom and situations at home and certain things. And you were always trying to give me advice and tips to work on rather than say, you got to fix this and deal with it on your own and sort it out. It was always kind of, okay, what, what can we do? What, where can we go wrong? Where have we gone wrong? And what's setting us back and holding us back? Yeah. And, and honestly, I, that's, I was reluctant to get into coaching. Um, you know, when I got done playing, I went right into the, the private sector training athletes because I did want to share what I knew. Um, but I was always reluctant to get into coaching because my experience with coaches um, was one that felt like it was very much, what have you done for me lately? Their relationship mm-hmm. with me as a player was always, not always, I shouldn't say always, I did have some good coaches too, but I had them later in my career. I had them more, much I had good coaches more as a pro than I did as an amateur. And yeah. that always bothered me is that it always felt like I was a commodity. I said from the beginning, if I'm going to get into coaching at all, 
it's always going to be on a level of it's about the kids first. I'm going to serve your hearts, not your talents. I can teach you the game of football. I can teach you, you know, a lot more than that, though. And with yourself and with all the other guys, like that's why I chose York. I had my choice of schools when I got into coaching. York was where I wanted. York was where I wanted to make the biggest impact. That's my community. These, you know, it's the one of the the strongest black contingents within youth sports, and I wanted to make an impact on young black men and and uh, like yourself, and and hopefully I feel like I did in my time there, and. Uh, but that ultimately that was a, a, a that ended up being a an issue that I think cost me as a coach. Uh, sadly, yeah. um, I don't mm-hmm. think it's it's a trait that's as revered these days in certain circles. And uh, but it's not one I was willing to compromise. For me, it's it's always about building a better young man. My I always told you guys my responsibility is not to the nineteen year old knucklehead you are at the <laughs> time. It's to the thirty year old man you're going to be. You know, I've always lived by that and I'll continue to. No, uh, 100% to speak on to that from from just interactions with me and interactions with anybody, period, even with the defense and all players, everyone knew that if anything was going wrong, that you could sit with Coach KP directly and just have a conversation about life and anything. And that the floor was always open to put anything down, whatever was going on, that there was no judgment, that there was no problems, that... It was just more about solution and the preparation of your life after university, after academics, when you start to have a family, when you start to prepare yourself as a young as a young man to raise a family and be that leader of a family. So, absolutely, and that I feel like that's one of the biggest gaps we have as as young black men is is you know whether it be an absence of of male role models that we respect and. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for me, finding that platform there where I could reach you guys, uh, for me, it was a bit easier because of my profile as a player would make it so that, it, you know, I, it's very difficult to question me from a professional yeah, standpoint. Exactly. In terms of what does he know? But that was never the challenge for me. For me, it was more I wanted to make sure you guys understood that I cared about you outside of this game. Like you were one of the fastest players in the league. You didn't hear us talking about that very much, though. And when it came time to make decisions about your career going forward as a football player, that didn't come up either. When you came in and were talking to me about sitting it down and, you know, we started talking about what track, getting your light, your yeah. school on, on, on track on, and on course, exactly. Yeah, getting, getting your life in order. And I, and I think that's one of the biggest issues we have is as a, as you know, young black males in our community, as we get our sights set on such you know, lofty goals, but really don't speak to the, the, the small goals that it's going to take to get there and how to reach and achieve those. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that's kind of where I was hoping to be a middleman and, and still am for a lot of you guys. And I'm glad to be that. No, a hundred percent. And even when we, t- when I talk back to the guys, sometimes that we always have conversations about even the simple things that add up, like the rise and grind where it's not, it was never a punishment, but you have to understand that it taught me, that you have things that you sign up for to do and that when you don't meet those things, that things are going to add up and you're not going to be in that boat. So you'd have the rising grind in the morning before the workouts. And it's like, you just get down on those lists and stuff like that. So even small things like that from our, from my aspect, looking back on it now, it's helped me so much because I, I get up early now because of my mindset's already set on get up early, get fresh, try to do a little workout, try to do something to get my brain going post the varsity life and that's something that i carried on with me 
And that's something I've passed on to a couple of friends of mine that like, you know, just get up and let's go do our work do a workout, blah, 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 do whatever we can early in the morning so that the rest of the day you're awake ahead and you get to use all 24 hours of your day instead of wasting it. Excellent. I'm glad, man. That discipline and accountability, you know, I told you when I, you know, when we brought you in there as a recruit, that's one thing you'll leave with. I can't promise you that you'll be an all-star as a player, but you yeah. know, if you stick it out, you'll leave with some discipline and accountability, which I help you more than anything else in your life. A hundred percent. But to get into it, I wanted to get into your start of your football career. Cause one thing that you played in the States to begin with, I wanted you to kind of break it down for the folks listening, especially even anyone listening of how did you get into football? What made you kind of choose football as your, as your career? Well, sure. Um, I came to the game very late. I didn't start playing mm-hmm. uh, much like yourself. I didn't start playing until I was a senior in high school. So, yeah. you know, 16, 17, actually, I think I was 17. You know, I was already an athlete in several other sports. Football came naturally, but I didn't know the rules. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just an athlete running around, but I was a good athlete running around. Uh, mm-hmm. I went to high school in Windsor, Ontario. I'm from the Detroit area, uh, but went to school in Windsor. Um, and I actually wasn't allowed to play. My mother didn't want me playing football. I thought I was too small. <laughs> Same and, here. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, you know, we actually similar build. Like I came in to college at like 155. So I was a mm-hmm. really light, slight guy, but but really twitchy. Did well in that senior year I played. Got a lot of attention um, from schools down south because I was so athletic. But I played other sports and I wasn't willing to drop these other sports to just play football. So I was recruited by major schools like Michigan and Syracuse and Georgia and offered by these schools. But, you know, it was either go play football or go play basketball and track. There was never a school that was offering all three and I didn't know what to choose. So the only school that offered to let me play all three at the Division One level was the University of New Hampshire. So I went there and played all three sports for four years. Actually, sorry, three years. I dropped basketball my senior year to prep for the draft in football. And, and ultimately when it came time, like to choose a sport, like I was proficient at all three, I was, uh, mm-hmm. you know, an all-star level player at all three sports, even at the university level, when it came time to choose, it really, for me became more of a business decision. Uh, yeah. I didn't love the game until I got to the pros really, and really started mm-hmm. to understand the team elements of it and what it was doing to me as a person character wise to have to be immersed in a team setting where I couldn't just dominate on my own track and basketball. I know basketball is a team game, but you can be a dominant player. Yeah, exactly. And I was that type of player. So I didn't not like who I was in those sports, but I really liked who I was as a football player much better because of my reliance, having to rely on other people made me look at people differently. So that made me fall in love with the game and the commitment to it. the, The fact that you can reinvent yourself in an off season and um, the constant competition, every play being, you know, got a chance to, to really to really compete with somebody as opposed to a system than the physicality of it. So not to mention the fact that when I'm getting ready as a senior, I was already pro height, speed and weight versus basketball. I'm four inches short of being, you know, a, a prospect. <laughs> and, uh, and then you start to think of the rounds. There's two rounds and at that time, two rounds in the NBA draft. There was seven oh, or eight okay. rounds at the time in the NFL draft. And again, I wasn't thinking CFL then. I was thinking all NFL. I didn't yeah. know much about the CFL. I didn't grow up really watching football, but you yeah. know, I was gearing towards the NFL draft in my pro day. And when I did 
uh, go through my pro day and get chosen. You know, I got chosen by Tampa Bay as a free agent, uh, but I got drafted by the CFL. I, you know, I had an option, uh, a coach actually, uh, he's the head coach of Ottawa now, Paul Lapolis, who was the previous receivers coach at University of New Hampshire. So he actually reached out to me. He was with Toronto at the time and said, listen, you're eligible for the CFL draft. You should come down to the combine. And I didn't know much about the combine, but I didn't want to close doors. So I went down, did really well at the combine and ended up getting drafted like fourth or sixth or something overall. And, you know, but now I got options, you know, so then it's like, okay, the NFL draft after that. And I got chosen as a free agent. And so I had a, had a choice, went to Tampa Bay first. Uh, Coach Dungy was there at the time. He said, listen, you know, we can't give you any money until you catch more balls. Cause I really only had a, (laughs) I really only had a, a, a good year, my senior year, because mm-hmm. I got into some trouble yeah. and um, my stats were suffering as a result of that. Sent me back up to Canada. I spent two years there, won a great cup in my first year and and That's was able crazy. to come back and do the NFL route after that. So in your first year in the CFL, how was that switch? Because the rules, a lot of people don't know the Canadian rules and the American rules are two different things. And it was even worse for me because, again, I only had, by that time, I'd only had five years of playing football under my belt at all. Wow. And it, there's a lot of rules to learn. And, and all my football had been the U.S. game. And I felt like I was just starting to understand the U.S. game rules, you know. So I'll tell you a story. Like my first time, I used to return kicks in Calgary because I had, you know, I had that kind of speed. And they didn't really care. Coach Wally Bono didn't really care if you were Canadian or American in terms of your passport, if you could play. Yeah. We had, you don't see very many, re- you know, Canadians returning kicks, at least during when I was playing. So they let me return them. I tried to call a fair catch my first time. <laughs> like that's oh, how no. that's how little that's I how, that's how rule yeah man yeah i'm sitting here calling fair catch they give the halo and then come blast me in the chest i'm sitting here getting up ready to fight and they pull me over <laughs> the sidelines they're like man you don't i'm like somebody nah, needs to tell me do i'm out here looking crazy on tsn yeah so <laughs> it was a steep learning cl- curve but i enjoy that type of challenge like where you have to learn on the fly like you know it took me six, seven years to really learn the game by that. But, you know, I had to learn as a pro and there was never really a time for me. Like I was fortunate enough to be a starter in my first year. So I never really had a year as a pro where I wasn't a starter. Um, it wasn't like I got to kind of ease my way in through special teams. I was, I was right out there, right out, you know, as a starter, as a, as an ex. Yeah, my right first off the year. jump. I had to learn on the job for sure. And that's a crazy process because, Usually when you enter, even when you entered university, you always start off kind of working your way through the system and special teams and then learning second on the depth chart, third on the depth chart. And that wasn't my experience. And that's what I had to really dig down and and develop an understanding of how to teach that as a coach, because that was not my experience as a player. Yeah. You know, football is one of those games where it's enamored by speed, as you know, you know, players, players will get hundreds of chances if they're fast. Coaches will get fired because they're waiting on a player to produce because he's fat. Well, I was fast and I could jump out of the gym and, you know, very similar to you. I, I had game changing speed. So they were going to give me chances regardless, but also I was skilled. I just didn't yeah. know. I didn't know which way to go and why, you know, I didn't know the jargon. I didn't know the terminology, but I could do, I could get the job done. So they threw me out there. They threw me to the fire right away at every level. I had to figure it out. And that's, that's an important skill to learn. And it's a difficult thing to teach, but uh, that's that was my experience. And to 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 add on to that, because one thing that even with I'd say my generation is that that I don't see and I can come on to it is that a lot of people can't thrive in that moment to be thrown to the fire right mm-hmm. away to to come through the fire and 
walk through it and balance and figure out things and go through. So how did you manage to deal with those moments where you had failures and you were up there with those failures? How did you mentally alone? Because it's not only the physical aspect, because if you already have all the physical God-given abilities, that's that's what's there. But mentally, and when you had those moments where you had lopsided and you failed, how did you bounce back and how did you bring yourself back? Well, that's those? honestly one of the great things about that game, football in particular, because you get knocked down every play damn near. Exactly. That the fortitude and resilience that comes from that game, it helped me anyway, understand that there's, you know, successes and failures in every play and to find a way to focus on the minute details, like the devil being in the details is how you get through those things. Focusing on one element at a time is how you get through big losses, um, big failures, because uh, you have to be able to find and pull a win out of it somehow. Even if exactly. the whole day is a yard sale and, you know, I've had days like that where, you know, you've got so so much went wrong. You feel like you're in quicksand. You still got to find a way to extract a positive from that, because even if it's the fact that everything was negative, that still can be a positive. You got to find a way to learn from everything, even if it's what not to do. That's that's something that that I can take away on my own right now, especially doing certain things that trying to figure out where if you have those days, because I've had days where it's just like, it's it's a write off those days where you get up and the whole day alone just feels like a write off. And it's like, what have you done? And it's like, you just kind of got to go through the details and figure out what you've done right in that day and pull it away as a success. Cause it's, you're never going to have perfect days. hundred percent. Or like you said, you know, and I've had days and I'm sure you have too, where literally you can't find anything you've done right. You know, exactly. And, and they show up even more evident in sport. You know, in a, in a sport yeah. like football or basketball, whatever, where it's right there, the stats, you know, the film, it's all right there. <laughs> and you genuinely feel like, man, I don't know how this could get worse, except for the fact that you've got the film and you can sit there and say and look at yourself and say, OK, well, since I didn't do anything right, let me find out what I did wrong. Well, there's yeah, plenty of that. Exactly. Let's that. <laughs> but, you, but you've got to have the fortitude to be able to to look at yourself honestly with clear eyes. And that's where I think a lot of people struggle is yeah. not being able to really. And I think we tend to build ourselves up bigger than maybe the reality is. And it's difficult for us to process sometimes that we are fallible. And yeah. it, I think it's important to come into a situation like that where, look, I'm trying to grow quickly in this field. You better come in with clear eyes knowing that you don't know anything. You don't even know what exactly. you don't know. So if you come in thinking, I don't know, I don't know what I don't know then you're going to learn something from everything, whether it be completely positive or completely negative. At the very least, you'll learn what not to do. pandemic right now that we're in that we found that setback where everybody's sat at home and you're at home and kind of the world that we live in has changed for maybe forever we know um how have you kind of kept that mentality and that stayed mentally sharp in terms of things that are going on and trying to keep your stuff going and your active going on your stuff it's i know it's tough like it <sighs> I think I'm at a bit of an advantage simply because my life experience has brought me to a place where I don't ever really look at a, 
a situation like we're all in as an, I'll find the positive and it's like, man, I got more time to learn something new. I've been learning new skills, picked up three or four new skills in a year, read 45 books. So I've acquired more knowledge. I've, you know, set up new programs and opportunities, reach down different roads, you know, working with my wife, trying to figure out different ways that we can affect people and impact people. So I, you know, I've been able to take it more as a break and a reset. And I know some people aren't able to do that. Again, I think my life experience kind of lets get lets me a bit off the hook that way and gives me a bit of an advantage to that degree in that, you know, I know that, you know, there's a blessing in something in literally mm-hmm. everything. Like I, you know, I finished my my term at York right before COVID hit. So I've yeah. literally been into my next chapter as COVID's been hitting, sitting here trying to figure out, okay, what's next? Do I want to jump back into coaching? Do I want to start something new? Do I want to get, you know, meanwhile, everyone's locked up in the house and that changes how you feel about everything. But it really does, I think, center around the notion that it's a blessing just to be here. And now what can I do with this time? And I hope that's what everybody comes away from it with is, okay, this time isn't promised better take advantage of it. And what, what, how can I best utilize this time? That freedom of time, because time is, time is always moving. It never, it never stops for anyone. So, because what, it's a year now that we've had on and off lockdowns, we've been in and out, but with all that freedom, it's, it's, what have you picked up? What skills take this as an opportunity? Cause I know someone that picked up the guitar someone that picked up the saxophone, just as extra hobbies and traits to have just to keep your mental sharp. So that when we get back to that regular world, if we ever get back to any pandemic or anything like that, you have a skill that you can kind of just be keeping sharp and you can make extra profit off as a side hobby and stuff like that. And I honestly think that's such a, such a huge thing for kids your age anyway, like the university age. I think that's one thing I've always felt like isn't spoken enough to your age group is that Mm -hmm. it's okay to try new things. Like I feel like you guys kind of come in and are told you have to jump in, pick a major and this is now your life. Yeah, exactly. Man, chance favors the prepared and the more things you're prepared to do, you know, when, when things hit the fan, you're now able to branch off and do something else. There's nothing wrong with the same notion you had as a child. You know, you're 10, 11, 12, and you're trying a different, all kinds of things. You're playing soccer, you're playing piano, you're, you're an artist at times. You're, you know, you're taking classes here. You're doing, you know, every you're you're much more spread in general. The generalization is much more encouraged in your youth. And then as we get older, it becomes more of a specialization. And I think that's not necessarily the right way to go about it in your early twenties in particular. You don't even know what you like when you get into university, you know, and and I think people go about it the wrong way. They, really think that it should be more of an emphasis on taking the first two years, at least three years to try multiple things and see what even what you're good at, what even mm-hmm. sparks you because the, you know, the school system you've been a part of prior to that is so linear. It's just, you know, kind of rubber stamping you through in this general way. And now you get to a university setting where you can pick and choose things. And it's like, you don't even know, it's like a smorgasbord. You don't even know what you like, you know, exactly. what do you don't know like? what you like till you try it. Yeah, you go to a buffet. What do I even like to eat? I haven't had anything but the same oatmeal my whole life. Okay, what do I even like? Let's try some things. And I think that's something where something like this, a pandemic hits, and hopefully that's kind of the way people have, I hope that's the way people have taken, especially people your age, man. You guys got the energy to go try whatever the hell you want. Go try some things, see what you like, come out of it. You might be a different person in a year. That's for sure the truth because 
even in terms of me, it's like I've been at home and I've been trying to figure out new things and I always like photography. So I picked up photography as a hobby with oh, just taking pictures and stuff and doing things like that. It's about trying to find new skill sets that you can carry on with Excellent. and you never know where it could take you. So that's, that's definitely a big conversation. Good. But I wanted to move into our second phase of this and the main conversation, the main reason I wanted to have a conversation with you about this was, was black excellence being in black history month and, a lot of things going on, especially when we were in the first lockdown last year with the George Floyd and everything going on. Um, what experiences have you had that have set you back because of your race? So what racial experiences have you had kind of growing up and everything? Aside from what I view as obvious systemic limitations that I recognized as early as probably 13, 14 um, you yeah. know, that was around the time, you know, first one, that's around the time I decided I was going to go, to university. And when I brought that mm -hmm. to my parents, you know, they were under no uncertain terms, you know, reluctantly told me, look, we can't afford to send you to university. If you're going, you're paying for it. You yeah. know, and to hear that at 13, it's like, okay, I know that if I ask my white friends the same question, it's not the same answer for them, you know, but you don't, at the time, it's not something I sat on and was like, man, this is, this is messed up. This is limiting me. I just, set my mind to, okay, how I want to be a university. I want to be a university educated level person. I want to get a deeper education. How can I achieve that? Okay. They're giving scholarships for athletics. Okay. I love doing that. I'm good at it. Let me dive in. And I dove in with both feet, sacrificed everything and put everything out of my, everything else on my path and earned a scholarship so that I could do that. Aside from that, once, you know, once I'm on the field, like in terms of my first career as a pro athlete, I didn't really feel racism as often because most of my career was here in Canada. You feel it at times when I played, you know, I played out West, you feel it more outside of the game. But even then, yeah. you know, we as black people kind of grow up with the sense and communicate with each other and kind of get passed down what situations you should stay away from yeah we don't even view it then as as problematic i think the george floyd you know spark really awakened a lot of people to just man listen to how messed up this is that we've been living exactly but it's been generationally passed down like i know there's as there's parts of Al alberta and that i was living in and you know outside of calgary outside of edmonton that you still see confederate flags on every truck Whoa. And I remember driving by, I'm thinking, I wonder if they know what that means, but they do, <laughs> they do. It's just, it's just like Texas out there, but Northern, a bit, a bit exactly. more Northern. So, so you kind of get a feel for where you should go, where you shouldn't go. And that alone is limiting, but we as yeah. black people get that in so many different facets. I think of things like, like sports, like, um, you know, I train so many athletes. One of the things I sit there and research is where the most scholarships are. And you'd be surprised. Most scholarships, like the highest percentage of scholarships given are in sports that aren't traditionally black people. Black, aren't black slave, yeah. And, and mm -hmm. what ends up happening in our communities is you get chastised or ridiculed for playing white sports or sounding white yeah. if you sound educated or talking white. And, you know, these things become limitations that you don't quite feel as limitations until you get much older, but they are, absolutely are. So in those ways, I've always been aware of it. But in the direct sense of my initial career in football, I didn't feel it as much. I was playing a game that's predominantly black, even at the Canadian game still, you know, we're still 60%, you know, occupancy on the, on the field, 
where I really feel it is in my second career, which was coaching. Yeah. That's where I felt it because in a youth sports setting where there's 27 teams and I'm an, I'm an offensive coordinator. I'm one of, I think it was five or six in the whole country, black coordinator, you know, in a, in a conference like the OUA with 11 teams and, you know, the most diverse province in the country, you know, Mm -hmm. there's no black head coaches. There's schools that have zero black, black full-time coaches. And, and as I'm sitting there looking at a potential career path, okay, what's next for me as a coordinator? Can I be a head coach? There's only three in the country. You know, is that really a thing? You know, I'm at a school like York, who's had traditionally one of the, had the most black players in the country every year. You know, it's usually 50, 55% black, which is way more than any other school in the country. Never had a black coach. And so you start to think about, you start to think about those limitations in real time Mm -hmm. um, when you're in that setting. Uh, But again, I wasn't there for that. I didn't jump into coaching to climb the ladder, but you know, if I had, it, it, it certainly wasn't averse, but I certainly noticed it. And I notice it much more now as I work with groups like the BCCA, uh, you know, the Black Canadian Coaches Association and the Black Football Coaches uh, of Canada, where I'm on the board of, of both of these. And now we're advocating mm-hmm. heavily for better representation within coaching um, at the university and, and even the, the CFL level. So I've seen some of my peers now get elevated to head coaching coordinator but it's it's way late in terms of the representation yeah. we see in the field versus what you guys see like you had a black coach in me was i the first black coach you'd had yeah you were i'll be in honest terms with of, you, I've, I've never had in one. terms of that i'm 42 years old i never, <laughs> I never had a black co- i never had a black yeah. coach until i you know as a head coach and now obviously i wasn't mm-hmm. your head coach but i never had a black coordinator i had a black position coach at the pro level the pros was the first time i even had a black position coach that's crazy and, and you'd be surprised, like, you don't think about how much that affects you as an athlete to sit there and give you some things to shoot for, even from a relatability standpoint. Like you said, like how many defensive players, I'd say at least 25 defensive players every year would find their way sitting in my office talking about things that had nothing to do with football, you know, simply because they, they knew I could relate to their experience as a black person on, on York's campus, you know, as a varsity yeah. athlete. So it definitely... I wouldn't say setbacks, but they're there and you feel them. And, you know, if I wanted to continue in coaching right now, there would be setbacks hundred percent. There's absolutely the goal line is different. Uh, The goalposts are moved and and changed for, for black coaches. This is why you don't see us represented at the head coach in high levels. Uh, You know, how many black ADs are there in the country? There's zero. Tell you that right now. Yeah. to bring back that point of that relatability i think that's one of the most important things of being a black athlete black student in terms it's if i go into a a room can i can i relate to someone off of race because that's just the one thing that you'll stand out is there another black person in this room and having some schools where you've seen it where some kids go to different programs and they have no black head coaches it's like what process do they go through if they have a racial issue who can they go and have a conversation with to, to get help? hundred so percent stuff like race and stuff. Like when it comes to those things, there's only, and I think that was the one thing that kind of set aside me going to your compared to any other schools. It was 
A, it was just a diverse campus alone for me. Besides it being close to home, it was a diverse campus alone. And I think it was only probably, in my opinion, the only school that I wanted to to go to just to experience the diversity as a whole outside of being an athlete and just seeing when I went on the campus tour and I was walking, I was like, there's a lot of different diversities here compared to other schools yeah. where it's like, oh, it's a different thing here. But then having that barrier where it's like, if there's an issue that happens and I don't have anyone to speak to as a coach, who do I speak to in terms of it? Because I can speak to the other coaches, but what if it's a racial issue or what if it's a direct family issue? Yeah. What does that come to? And coming from black parents, I know my mom directly was like, is there any black coaches on the team? And I was like, yeah, there's one. Or there's, yeah, there's one. Okay, cool. I'm more comfortable with that. Just as that barrier of being black students and black adults, I think my mom was more comfortable with me going to York knowing that I had a black coach there to rely to and talk to directly if I had anything going on. hundred percent that matters. And, and, you know, I get asked that oftentimes when I talk to, you know, I talk to guys I played with, I'm still friends with a lot of guys I played with in university. And that's one of the things that comes up, you know, if you had to do it again, you know, do you regret going as an alum? You know, and I don't regret my experience. That being said, if I had to do it again, I'd probably go to an HBCU. Just knowing what I know and knowing how enriching it would have been as an experience from a university level experience to be around that many motivated, driven, sharp, other black people trying to ascend. What it would be like to be in that room matters. Mm -hmm. Absolutely makes a difference. And I'll tell you right now, like, you know, when I talk to my sons about it, my sons are 12 and 10, it'd be 13, 11 this year. And they're already naming schools, talking about schools. I tell them flat out, there ain't no way you're going to a school without black <laughs> Now, the, U the U.S. already understands this concept better. They've since, you know, Bear Bryant started, you know, bringing black folks to Alabama after USC crushed them that year. You know, they understand that at the very least, you better have some black assistant coaches and recruiters. And, you know, but it's still not where it needs to be from a representation standpoint. They're still not handing the keys over to, to black to lead these teams. Yeah. And you see it at Absolutely. the NFL level with only four black coaches now it's still grossly under underrepresented and it's something I'm glad I'm fighting for and advocating for now through these separate organizations. But I see it, like I said, to, to your initial point, I see it much more in my second chapter of my life professionally in coaching than I did in playing. It's not something yeah. I was as conscious about as a player uh, on field. You, you're aware of it off field, obviously because you're aware of it like you are as a black man anywhere. You know what I'm saying? Like that's, exactly. I, I don't think it's a different experience, but in coaching, I'm really aware of it. No, that was amazing. And to move on to the the question I had for you was, how has privilege impacted your career, both as a player and as a coach and stuff? And now, and now moving on to that next phase of your of your life. I mean, you talking about privilege in the sense of white privilege, or privilege in the sense of my privilege over another peer. Uh, your privilege over another peer, in sense. Okay, so I was like I like I told you, I was blessed with with you know, game changing speed and athletic ability. So I know I got more opportunities than my peers that weren't as fast as me, that weren't mm -hmm. as athletic as me. I know I, I was able to mess up a lot more than those players were at the university level. I was able to jump people in line. I remember I started my first game in college against uh, William and Mary. I'll never forget against Darren Sharper. Uh, who was, he was a senior free safety at the time. He's in anyway, I started that game over a senior who had been waiting for three years to start and he was livid. And I, and I understood why he was livid at the same time. Of he course. couldn't run like me. 
He couldn't run yeah. like me. And the coach and I felt bad for him, but at the same time, I had a job to do and I felt bad for the sense that he felt helpless in that. He had worked for it and I didn't agree with leapfrogging him at the same time, you know, I understood it. So I've benefited from that to a degree. And even I would say in the CFL, I benefited from from that. I got opportunities as a quote unquote non-import player. I was considered Canadian mm-hmm. even though I'm an American citizen. Right. I was yeah. considered Canadian for the purposes of the CFL. I got way more opportunities to learn. Like I learned on that. When I tell you I learned on the job, I had years where I was dropping balls that would have had me fired if I was considered American. <laughs> for sure. I can yeah, remember no, 100%. a game. I, yeah, it was a game. It was the time I played in Winnipeg. Like that year was just a terrible year. I came back from the NFL. I was way too heavy because it's a different mindset over there. It's, it's all big. I was like 230, come back really muscle bound and I couldn't do what I was known to do. And I was dropping balls and I would have been cut weeks ago if I was American. I knew that I knew I was extended a privilege because of my passport or my being considered Canadian. So I felt it and I I feel like I'm always conscious of it. And even I would say over other Canadians within the game, like I played with other guys who were Canadian that couldn't deliver what I could deliver physically. They couldn't run like Mm -hmm. me. so I could, I was a ratio breaker cause I could run and jump like an American. And we had guys that would catch everything you threw to them, but they ran four, seven. They had to play the Z spot. You know, that Z spot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that I, Z I, spot. I never had to play that spot. And no. you know, I was always in an American spot. So I, I knew that privilege. So I've seen that there. And I would say even in coaching, I didn't have to go through the channels that other coaches do. I was able to, you know, skip the queue to a degree simply by my pedigree in terms of what I, my, my time playing. And then my time on that, you know, I get selected for the national team. There's coaches that were waiting for that opportunity, I'm sure for years. And I just got asked, I actually didn't even want to do it. I almost turned it down, you know, but I got asked simply because, you know, coach Thorpe, who was the head coach at the time was familiar with me through playing. He coached me as a, as a, when I was with Edmonton and was like, you know, I think you'd be mm-hmm. a great coach. He saw what I was doing with my business at the time, coaching kids. He was like, sure. I think you'd be a great coach pulls me up. And I'm sure there are coaches that are still mad about that. So I'm aware <laughs> of the privilege as I jump the line. I'm certainly aware of it. And, and I think that partly affects how I'm constantly in a give back mode. I always feel like I owe this game heavily. Even now I'm, you know, I'm constantly working with, you know, I'm working with guys now that are prepping for the combine and working with guys that are prepping for their next season. And, I'm always trying to give back to it because the game's done so much for me. Yeah. It's that point of give back. And that's, that's what, that was the one thing that you and you implied also when I was playing was that once, once your time is up, it's, it's time to look to the next generation to give back, to show them what you've done that worked and what you've done that didn't work. And to give them that blueprint to work with and say, Hey, this is the model that I was given by some of these things work. Some of these don't find what works for you and pick and choose out of it. 100%. 100%. And, and, and very much like you said, I think the most important thing when you're talking about privilege is understanding when you are in a privileged position. I think that's where, you know, you're starting to see nationally and globally more of an awakening and understanding and a conversation, at least about privilege. And it's speaking more about white privilege, obviously, but that's the big thing. It's not so much that you need to apologize for your privilege. What it is, is recognizing where it holds. And, and if you can do something to give somebody else a leg up, pay that forward. That's the biggest thing.
to add on to that, the you did say the white privilege. What did you see in your career that was part of white privilege that kind of held your career back and that held you back in terms of that? I didn't see it very much in as a player, to be honest. I think mm-hmm. um, from the athletic standpoint, that realm, you know, the numbers take care of themselves, the feats take care of themselves, yeah. which is partly why I chose that as an initial career path. Cause I, you know, you sit there and you're a young person, 12, 13, 14, you're seeing, you're looking around for people that look like you excelling. And that's mm-hmm. where one Avenue where I felt like you could see, I was sitting there watching Michael Jordan and Barry Sanders. I'm like, man, nobody's standing in their way. They're able to run around people and score and, you know, score points, whatever it is that they're being asked to do, no one's standing in their way of them earning and being revered. So that's the path I chose because it suited my makeup and things that I was good at. We need more of those avenues, like to understanding more of those avenues. But in terms of like my own, you know, feeling like I had been like, like white privilege had slowed my process at all. I really didn't really see that until I got into coaching and again, it's not so much that it slowed my process because I wasn't in it to try to become a head coach. But if I was, I would I certainly see how that avenue would be closed off at times. You know, like I've seen several head coaching jobs at the U sport level or even just in OUA one year, two, I think it was two years ago, there were four head coaching jobs open within the span of two, three months. And I and I know a lot of the black coaches, if not all of them, not one got interviewed. Wow. You know, not one got made it to the interview process, you know, and, and so things like that, it would, it would really affect me. And that's partly the reason why I don't think I can stay in that field, to be honest. I don't, I just don't think I'm built for it. I'm going to, I can fight that battle better not being in it because if I'm in it, I'm going to take it way too personally that there are so many black coaches that are forced to sit behind people that they're more qualified than simply because that opportunity has isn't going to go to them. I'd feel much differently about it if I was still if my livelihood was still contingent upon that. And I so I feel like I'm in a better position not as a coach to advocate for that that change. And to add to that, that's the division between the athletics and the coaching side in terms cuz athletics is your numbers. Numbers don't yeah, lie. Whatever you do, your stats don't lie. It's all performance based. So when you get into that world, it's it's 100% that if you're the best player, you're going to play all nonsense aside, whatever goes on. If you're the best player at that time, they're going to find a way to get you on the field. But once right. that's done and it's time to go into that, now let's say, not to say corporate world, but that in terms of the, corp- the closest thing to the corporate world where now it's just politics and it's just different things going on, that base, it changes the look of it. And that's probably... I've always wondered why I always see it. I'm like, even talking about the NBA, I'm like, why don't a lot of NBA players come back and go coach? Or why don't a lot of athletes go back and coach? Because you've played the game, but it's a different process to go through, I guess. You deal with well, more, because the and, values and are different. Exactly. And ultimately that speaks to, you know, you got to think of it at the executive and the at the ownership level. Those that yeah. are making the decisions, who are they comfortable with leading these mm-hmm. programs? You know, and that's why exactly. you know, I'll, I'll use the NFL as an example, okay? There's no way in hell with 77 to 80 percent of the league black as player yeah. that the NFL should only have four black coaches. OK, but it has 100 percent white ownership. And yeah. this is a billion dollar toy for them. And who are they really going to entrust the keys to? You know, it's not politics so much as it is policy. 
And I think you see that I'm using it as, you know, coaching as an example, but it's present in everything. Whereas, and we've been taught that I know I was taught it as a young man and I, I need to, I'm really trying to focus on not teaching my kids this because I was taught this, that we have to be two times as good as our white counterpart. <laughs> get an opportunity. Exactly. I know you probably heard it. I heard it growing up and I'm, and I'm really trying like hell not to teach my kids that because I think it's the wrong message in that. Yeah. It, it, that's the part that needs to change. It should go to the most qualified. There shouldn't be an asterisk beside, okay, well, this was a minority hire or this is a minority interview or this is a black interview. So I did my part interviewing, but I'm still more comfortable going because he has to be, or she has to be three times as good. She's got, you know, her resumes exactly. checks off three times the boxes just to get the same job. That's the part that, like I said, from an outside in perspective, I think I can, I can fight a lot harder for if I'm in it. And when I was in it, it's much more difficult because yeah, you, 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 know your you know, your livelihood is too, is so contingent upon it. You got to be care. You got to have to be much more careful. You're constantly stepping on eggshells feeling like what I say next could get me fired. And I can't, you can't fight like that. You can't protest no. things like that. No, that's, that's a hundred percent true. Cause even coming from my aspect growing up, my mom was always saying, you always, your resume has to be better than the next person, period, just because of your skin tone. And I was always hesitant to be like, no, it makes no sense. So I've experienced that moment where me and my counterpart, because I think me and my friend went for the same job and I was more qualified for him, but I just, we both looked at each other. And he's like, your resume is way better than mine. And we just looked at each other and we're like, this is what the world that we live in. This is what yeah. it's kind of, it is. And then to hear you say that about um, with your kids that, to kind of end that notion because that's a notion that's been passed on. And that's a notion that I already had in my head and I've kind of negatively passed it on to cousins and friends and little friends and like younger friends of mine saying, you got to have that big resume that blows out everybody out of the competition based off of that, rather than it be, if you meet the qualifications and you do your part, it should go to you. There shouldn't be that barrier of, well, we chose this person because of this and your resume is really good, but we didn't. Cause that's what my mom dealt with. And that's stories that she used to tell me all the time. So, and the message should be that we, this is why we need to get, and it will be to my sons. This is why it's important that you guys prepare yourself and arm yourself so that when you get to a level of really being in a position to make decisions, you mm -hmm. pay that forward. That's, we need a cultural uplift in that regard in that as opposed to getting into these positions and hoarding feeling like, man, I got to really watch my step now that I'm here. That's tends to be our mindset. And this is why, yeah. it, you know, this spring was so freeing. You saw a lot of black folks and allies finally speaking out that weren't. You exactly. saw people that were sitting on their hands and sitting on their voices before you saw public figures, athletes, entertainers finally coming out and speaking. Whereas before they were so worried about their endorsements, so worried about their next job that's been our mindset since Jim Crow is like, man, you know, once you make it a bit, we got to make sure we, you know, we got to keep all this to ourselves. No, we need to share how we got there. And we need to, when we get in a position of hiring and power, we need to make sure we pay those things forward and uplift. Everybody's got to eat out off the table. It can't just be us eating. Otherwise nobody eats. And that's the part where it comes to it. It's, um, as you said, sharing, it's that blueprint that once you've found that, once you've cracked that code, it's sharing it to others to say, okay, this is the, this is a module. Not that it's going to work for you, but this is kind of a blueprint of what I did to get to here. And this is how I got 100%. here and passing it on to the next generation. 
Absolutely. And and to be honest, this is something that our culture has been robbed of over time. If we're being hundred percent honest, you look at other cultures, that's exactly how they've built, right? Mm -hmm. You look at Asian cultures, Jewish cultures, this is how Italian, this is how they've built is by passing on through their elders to the next generation. And we've lost our history in our transference here. And in doing that, we've lost our sense of uplifting each other and passing on that knowledge. So now we're so disconnected from each other that it's it, it, the biggest challenge is just trying to find a way to, to, to tie that link back. And in doing so, that's got to be our next step if we're truly going to uplift our culture. That's that's an amazing to that's an amazing thing to say because one thing I wanted to get into towards the end was the embodying of black excellence in terms of that for you. All that communication stuff. What are steps and blueprints to give to those listening, especially the next generation, because that's anybody in their early twenties and even graduating high school? What would you say would be the mindset to have to carry on? that mantle and that torch that you and the older generation is passing on to us? I think honestly, it's, it's, if I'm, you know, there, that's a, a really deep and heavy question. I could sit on yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. For, for, no, our, for sure. If I was biting off a smaller chunk, what I would say is embracing your brother as yourself is something mm -hmm. that would change everything. If you look at someone else's success as your own success, it changes how you view that person. It changes how, as opposed to viewing, we tend to and have tended to view uh, the success of others that look like us in more of a crabs in a barrel mindset. Yeah. To the degree that the word hating became a uh, an actual trend for the last decade. And it's something mm -hmm. that has made its way into culture, made its way into music. And now people's goal is to have the most amount of haters and you know it's so backwards it should never be about outshining others it should always be about i've been able to find some success in something if you're interested in that i can show you how i did that and that is literally it you you know we spend so much time searching for what's the mindset i should have to be great what's the what am i what can i do to uplift that's it. It's that simple. If you can find a way to do something well and have some success at it, find a way to pass that on to somebody. And if you're looking for a way to be great at something, find someone who has been great at what you're trying to do and ask them how. Ask them to teach you. I think we've gotten away from things like mentorship and teaching and coaching because we get so prideful we get this hustler mentality that like, I just got to get out and grind. You don't know how to grind if you don't know what you're going into. Exactly. Right. Like you can grind, you can sit out there and spin your wheels. You can go out there and try to, you know, get three or four things going and, and just outwork everybody. But that's not the path to success. You need to find out the steps that you need to take to be great at that thing or those things. If you've got the energy to do multiple things, fine. You'd have a lot less energy, a lot more energy to spend if you were efficient about how you achieved those things. And the way to do that is to talk to people who have done it and had success. And what pitfalls did they face? Now you can avoid them. an amazing thing for my like for my generation to focus on because 
I think it's unity is the underlining thing to come together that it's been a lot of separations no matter what and to celebrate everyone's successes as your own and those your brother's successes and your sister's successes as yours is what I think would help bring us together and closer. 100%. But it comes from a place of humility. Yeah. And this is something where, to be honest, our, our culture, you know, I'm be real frank, our culture struggle with this as of late, humility. Yeah. When I was your age, the goal for young professionals, I'm sitting there as a pro in the NFL and CFL, and everyone's asking me, why am I not wearing giant diamonds on my ears? Why am I not <laughs> wearing, you know, spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on jewelry? And the mindset, just that toxic mindset, that has nothing to do with success. And understanding like you be humble or you will be humbled. And in that Mm -hmm. humility, understanding that, look, I need to go and find what's next and find, you know, this is something I'm interested. I need to find someone who's good at it. Let me find a way to connect with someone who I can now teach what I've learned to because I've had some success. That's all it is. And people would really as a as a whole we as a people would benefit heavily if we could figure out how to do that in mass yeah it's starting you can see that starting and i can see it through social media i can see it through different initiatives and that i'm a part of and that i've seen spring up and i i really keep crediting you know that george floyd tragedy as a spark to it and i just hope that catches fire and continues to grow cuz 10 years from now when my son's your age I need to be able to sit here and have this conversation with him and it be different than it is now, which is already yeah. different than it was when I was your age, you know? Exactly. But, but, so it's starting to change. That's the biggest thing though. That's a, it starts with a humble mindset and, and recognizing that my brother's successes are mine and my father's successes are also, you know, I, I have access, we have access to so much information. We just don't tap into it. And we need to quit hoarding that and, and be humble enough to reach out and ask for help with, with those things. That's perfect. And to get into the closing thoughts with you, um, I had a question for you because you've moved on to, in each phase of this, and this is a three-phase thing, what does success look like to you? So as a player, what did success look like to you? Then as a coach and now as someone that's no longer coaching and working on those barriers and trying to work on things like that, what does success look like to you? Honestly, it it hasn't changed. And that's, that's finally, I can give you a short winded answer. I think (laughs) success to me, I learned a long time ago is simple. It's literally leaving things better than you found them. Mm -hmm. Whatever that is, you know, how you do anything is how you do everything. And understanding that, you know, whether it be on the field, you know, did I, did I impact this game and make it better for my team than it would have been in my absence? If it's coaching, did I impact these players and are they now better than they would been than they were when I, when they came to me, as I go on into business, you know, into advocacy, into all of these things, it's all impact based and your success to me, like, you know, for example, people ask me if my time at York, did I feel like that I was, you know, oh, it's it's a shame that your, your time was at York and you guys didn't have success as a team. I'm like, you're crazy. We had I view my six years at York as very wildly successful. I remember what it looked like when I got there. <laughs> okay. And yeah. and those that were around in 2014, 2015 that played on those teams that watched those teams, they know what I'm talking about, what those scores and outcomes look like, what those players um, disposition was, what it was like for them to be part of those teams. And I still talk to some of those teams, the, the Adam out of Boboyes and, yeah. you know, 
Eric Kimberly's and these guys. And I talked to them about their growth throughout that five, six years. And yeah, it was wildly successful because I was able to, to be a force multiplier in a program that went from completely obscure and, and desolate to a, con- a, a legitimate contender each game you had to come to play each game and that gives such hope and admiration and growth to those players and you know i've been able to to help them achieve that and teach them what it takes to build something like that now they're going to take that into their personal lives and into their family lives Mm -hmm. and take those tools and build their communities and their families and their little villages and tribes and so to me that was wildly successful i left that place considerably better than when i found it and no, that's, that's, that's it. You had, you know, a simple question. What does success look like? Leave everything better than when you found it. Everything. everything. That's a great definition to success. And that's, that's something I hope someone can take away from this. And I want to thank you coach for taking the time out of your day. Cause I know you're busy and everything. And I want to thank you for having this conversation with me. Cause we haven't really spoken in a while, but I want to thank you for letting me pick your brain and have these conversations with you about what's going on, what's what the past look like, what the present look like, and what the future, what you envision for the future as a black man and as an entrepreneur and as a businessman. Appreciate that, Majin. I appreciate the opportunity. And, and you know, as you know, my my door is always open. <laughs> Figuratively. Exactly. It, it, it always. <laughs> Absolutely. Appreciate it, Coach. Take care. All right. You too.